Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Andrew Coburn. He is the Washington editor for Harper's Magazine, and his latest book is Spoils of War. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Hey, it's great to be with you. We are in the midst of this crisis over Ukraine, and one of Democrats' major priorities is pushing through more weapons sales to Ukraine. And I was curious to get your perspective on what role the weapons industry has played in the current crisis. Can you talk about that and how this major issue that Russia has wanting to keep Ukraine out of NATO, how NATO expansion has been a boon for the weapons industry that you spent so much time covering? Absolutely. Well, actually, I'm continually reminded, well, I remind myself of a story that's in the book, In Spoils of War, which describes a meeting um, held by the uh, chairman of the uh, House, uh, one of the House <coughs> military committees, actually it was the Intelligence Committee, uh, a breakfast, fundraising breakfast, uh, a couple of days after Putin, uh, or the Russia <coughs> took over Ukraine, uh, Crimea. Uh, and there were a group of, it was mostly attended by defense industry lo- lobbyists. And there was a friend of mine who was also a lobbyist who was a, who was present and I was, I saw him later that day and he was telling me about this meeting and I said, well, how did it go? What was the, what was the mood? Uh, and he said, I'd call it borderline euphoric. Um, they were all so excited at this, you know, the incredible possibilities have been opened up um, that now, you know, with Russia t- uh, moving into uh, Crimea, that, you know, obviously, you know, the new Cold War could really ramp up. And so it's proved. Um, you know, I know you've talked a lot about uh, Russiagate and the absurdity of the Trump impeachment, the first Trump impeachment inquiry. And I always like to remind people that the Democrats impeached Trump for holding up a weapon sale. That was his major crime uh, for holding up a Raytheon weapon sale. And that is, you know, it's a great reflection on the um, today's political culture that that's considered an indictable offense. Well, you know, look, someone someone watching this might say, no, the real offense was that Trump held up the weapon sales and tried to use that to pressure Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. And what I spent a lot of time writing on at the time for The Nation magazine was that while it's true that there was evidence that Biden, that 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 Trump and Giuliani were mainly Giuliani were applying pressure on Ukraine to launch some kind of probe of Biden and Hunter Biden's dealings and getting that very lucrative job at, at Burisma and Biden's role in firing the prosecutor. They had no evidence at all that this pressure campaign by Giuliani was connected to this uh, weapons freeze. And the the weapons freeze only happened because after Trump came into office, he was constantly being called a Russian puppet. And so to, I think, help prove that he wasn't, he undid Obama's decision, which was to reject those weapons sales. And he approved them. Then finally, when he paused them, he had been complaining about how much the U.S. is paying for them and subsidizing these weapons for Ukraine. And he wanted NATO to pay more. And there's plenty of evidence of that. And there's no evidence at all that somehow his pressure campaign about Biden was connected to this weapons freeze. And because of the lack of evidence, that's when Democrats pivoted to relentlessly saying that Trump had put the U.S. in danger because he had frozen these weapons sales. And the famous saying of Schiff, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. I know there were so many inane statements associated with this whole business, but that's, I think that's probably the lead one. I mean, you know, there's, um, 
there was a great a friend of mine who I quote often in the book, who was a great inspiration to me on all this thing, Pierre Spray, who unfortunately passed away last year. Um, and he, you know, who was the clearest eyed observer or inmate indeed for many years of the Pentagon I've ever met. Um, and he, he was designed his- a major uh, war plan, right? He designed the A-10, well, had designed the A-10, created the A-10 or co-created it with someone else and and the F-16, the only two rare instances of weapons that actually work in our our armory. But Pierre always used to say that the US government basically has two functions, which are to buy arms at home and sell arms abroad. (laughs) And that's what it does. You know, that's, and, you know, the... You know, I'm always impatient. I mean, I've written elsewhere, and I talk a bit in the book about, um, certainly in the introduction, about how futile it is to talk about foreign policy. I mean, um, the idea that sort of nations have this, you know, collective impulse to do things with regard to the rest of the world. It's not. It's almost always to do with money and usually and personal interest and personal political ambitions. And usually, certainly in our case, this has to do with arms sales. Uh, you know, our whole approach to China at the moment has a lot to do with arms sales to Taiwan. Certainly, our approach to Europe and you know the expansion of NATO had a huge. Again, I talk about this a lot in the book. Had um, you know had a lot to do with the ambitions of the, the Lockheed uh, Lockheed Martin Corporation um, and Norm Augustine's to need to find a market for F-16s in Eastern Europe. Uh, following the breakup of the Soviet Union, you know that's that's what explains it. And I think, if assuming we all survive the current lunacy, I mean, future historians, I think, will you know, disinterring the Ukraine crisis of uh, 2022, um, you know, we'll see the hand, we'll discern the hand of Raytheon, Lockheed, uh, General Dynamics. Um, that's what it's clearly to me all about in the end. Speaking of Lockheed Martin, let me read to you a lead from a New York Times article from 1997. This was when the Senate was considering approving a major expansion of NATO, which it did with very little opposition. So this is from the uh, lead of the article. The article is by Jeff Gerth and Tim Weiner. At night, Bruce Jackson is president of the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO, giving intimate dinners for senators and foreign officials. By day, he is director of strategic planning for Lockheed Martin the world's biggest weapons maker. Mr. Jackson says he keeps his two identities separate, but his company and his lobbying group are fighting the same battle. Defense contractors are acting like globe-hopping diplomats to encourage the expansion of NATO, which will create a huge market for their wares. That's from the New York Times in 1997. Andrew, you interviewed uh, Bruce Jackson for your reporting. Can you talk to us about what his group was uh, who was a part of it and that period of you know a lobbying frenzy to expand nato back in the 1990s well yeah i mean bruce um we have many conversations and he would insist with an absolutely level voice and straight face that really you know his his day job with lockheed and his nighttime you know wine drinking parties were completely disassociated in fact i think he tried to tell me one time that lockheed rather disapproved of his energetic activities in uh, in expanding nato um and i was slightly insulted that he expected me to, expected me to believe this um, this nonsense but what was uh, what was interesting about the group was they met um and you've actually looked at this more recently than i have i'm ashamed to admit but the uh 
And the copy of my book is actually propping up my laptop at the, as we speak, so I can't refer back to it. But the it was a group. It was a very bipartisan group. There was the um, the guy who'd been Clinton's lawyer. Um, there was a, a sort of Republican, sort of mainstream Republican socialite. They would have in. Um, they would uh, invite in sort of as they sat over this rich lady's um, wine and cheese. They would invite in, um, you know, veterans of the fight against communism in Eastern European, uh, Eastern Europe, under the day in the days of the Soviet Union, who would talk about how they'd been, you know, sort of tortured and harassed by the KGB, um, and they would invite along, you know, they they would have, you know, six, ten senators uh, sitting around the fire discussing how, how how to do this, and it was, you know, it built up this. I mean, the important thing to me, it seems to me, about this whole uh, whole push, to, you know, rearmament push, reigniting the Cold War that went on and has gone on um, successfully, I'm afraid, is how bipartisan it is. These were, I mean, Bruce kept stressing to me, oh, it was Democrats involved. This, this was a wholly bipartisan initiative. And we're seeing that today with, you know, the, with the activities of the Democrats in Congress. Um, so, uh, but you know that they in sort of you know now we can read and you know any any number of analyses of NATO expansion, but you so rarely see uh, the name Norm Augustine mentioned, um, and who was this extremely crafty and smart um, head of head of Lockheed Martin and the role he played, his closeness to Clinton, his closeness, his employment of Bruce Jackson. Um, who, by the way, Bruce later on, um, uh, yeah, I mean, slightly later, founded the committee. It was the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq, and there was the Committee on the Transitional Democracies. Um, Bruce eventually actually got religion, um, and uh, uh, again, a story in the book, which is we should mention the events in Georgia in 2008, when it was really a precursor to the present crisis over Ukraine, when you had this sort of very excitable individual, uh, Misha Shakasvili, who was the leader of uh, Georgia, who'd been encouraged to think um, by Bruce Jackson, among other people, um, that Georgia could get into NATO. Dick um, Cheney, too, was a big enthusiast yeah. for this as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and Dick Cheney, particularly. Um, and actually, at that point, he therefore deliberately set out to provoke Russia. Um, you know, and that thing is completely sort of forgotten largely today. People just remember that it was Shakashvili was trying to provoke Russia uh, by moving into South Ossetia, uh, which was, you know, at least under Russian control, maybe reprehensibly, but certainly was the case. And he knew exactly what the Russian reaction would be, which was to very sharply counterattack. And he expected, or at least hoped, had been led to believe that by Cheney that maybe the you know, US and NATO would intervene on his behalf. But here's the important distinction. Bush himself and Stephen Hadley, who was his national security advisor, went out of their way to tell Shakaspili, don't think we're going to um, start World War III on your behalf. Um, and, you know, it was... 
you know, he'd been deluded, Shaka the Georgian had been deluded into thinking they would. Um, you know, Jackson himself said to me, Misha was trying to flip us into a war. Um, so the difference between then and now is, <laughs> unfortunately, it makes, makes George Bush, George W. Bush, look kind of smart um, because he realized the pitfalls and he went to great lengths um, even these people who we rightly reviled at the time for the you know, invasion of Iraq and all the rest and everything else that went on at that time. But at least they had the sense to see that, you know, provoking Russia in an area of vital concern to, uh, uh, you know, Russia's sincerity concerns was not a good idea. Whereas I'm not sure the present crowd in the administration and certainly not in the Congress get the point. Bruce Jackson, the former Lockheed Martin executive and founder of the Committee to Expand NATO, gave you a very astute quote. He said to you, fuck Russia is a proud and long tradition in U.S. foreign policy. It doesn't go away overnight. Yeah, how right he was. I mean, I, <laughs> Bruce is a very smart person who understands how the system works. Um, yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, it's it's actually... I don't, I'm an old, I'm old, and I remember, you know, 1991, 1992, and it really did seem, and I feel stupid now to think that I thought this way, that maybe it had all gone away and, you know, okay, so they won the Cold War and maybe now we can stop, you know, living on the precipice, blah, blah, blah. You know, I should have known then, and I did sort of dawn on me short, not too long afterwards, this was, you know, this was not going to go away. Um, that fuck Russia would would be present. And of course, the other smart person I admire, at least for their smartness, if not for their behavior, is, again, I keep referring to him, Norm Augustine, the head of Lockheed, who predicted in 1991 when arms budgets were being cut, because after all the war was over, he said uh, the, um, the defense budget will start recovering in 1996. And actually, he was wrong by a year, but still pretty good. Um, so they knew, you know, that fuck Russia and now added to which we now have fuck China too, you know, would would be along to save them. So it's a and this is, you know, I talk elsewhere in the book about how really the defense the defense system is really we should think of it as like this giant, you know, virus or amoeba um, that exists only to sort of maintain its food supply and grow, um, which is, I think is one way to look at the, and is borne out actually by um, by the history of, uh, since, since this all began with the beginning of the Cold War. It reminds me of what the scholar Richard Sakwa says about uh, NATO, which is that basically uh, NATO exists to manage the risks created by its own existence. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> you know, whatever they've they've cobbled up various um that's that's certainly it. I mean, the, you know, the Hallett sort of hackneyed quote is, you know, the by made by some British official, I think, years ago was to keep the uh the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. But now you have the interesting fact that the Germans, you know, want no part of the risks that um that NATO, you know, that are being undertaken in the name of NATO at the moment. You know, which reminds me, I don't know if you saw this, but as we're speaking, there was just an article in the New York Times that is very critical 
of Germany's reluctance to engage in a war with Russia or to threaten its energy supplies, which uh, mostly come from Russia. And the Times writes this, that uh, there is now a, quote, wrenching debate over where precisely German loyalties lie. (laughs) I mean... You know, you, uh, I hate I hate the cliche. You couldn't make this up, um, but you know, the Times. I mean, if anything, I mean, we could subject for another day, maybe. But uh, you know, how much worse even than could have been imagined the New York Times has become, and the notion that Germany should really just trample on its own very vital security interests, such as its energy supply, um, plus, as, you know, all its business relationships with Eastern Europe and so forth, with, with Russia, should therefore shoot itself in both feet by joining in this hysterical onslaught against Russia. It's, it's amazing, really, that, that human hands could type such tripe, as someone said, but they, they manage it. Um, you know, the war, I think it's... Um, I mean, again, we can discuss why, you know, why there's really a, a total absence. I mean, maybe you scrutinize these things more closely than I do, but I've yet to see in any major news outlet, you know, any questioning, any examination of the facts, you know, any any analysis of Ukrainian politics, why, you know, which has led to all this, um, you know, why any of this is happening. It's just this sort of hysteria. It's like... Um, I don't know, it's like, you know, takes us back to 1914 and stories of Germans bayoneting Belgian babies or something. It's that level of sort of puerile uh, warmongering. And I think that observation applies to Congress as well. You know, in recent years, I think one could count on someone like Dennis Kucinich or Tulsi Gabbard to, you know, at least be somewhat skeptical of this rush to send more weapons to Ukraine. Now you have Democrats pushing through this new Defending Ukraine Sovereignty Act of 2022, $500 more million at least for weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And there's just almost there's no congressional opposition from the progressive wing that I can see. Not whatsoever. I mean, they, they're too terrified of being labeled as soft on Putin or whatever that, uh, whatever you meant. You know, and there's not even on the Re- Republican, you know, for a time in the sort of later Iraq years, you know, we had, uh, there was elements on the Republican right. I mean, I remember with affection, Walter Jones, who was the a Republican congressman from North Carolina, who was, you know, we used to laugh at because he'd come up with the idea of calling French fries freedom fries. But then Jones, he started to, because Camp Lejeune was in his district, and once that we'd invaded Iraq, he found himself going to funerals of young Marines. Uh, and he had this sort of Damascene moment when he realized that he was guilty. He was a guilty party, that he'd voted for all this and spent the rest of his life in Congress um, fighting against the wars, um, you know, voting against them and sending a personal letter, letter of condolence, condolence and apology to the family of anyone killed in the wars. No, I don't think there's anyone left like that. Uh, Justin Amash, another one, a sort of libertarian uh, Republican from Michigan. He used to, you know, he used to be there, you know, a, quite a strenuous anti-war voice. He's gone. So we have, as you say, a Congress that's completely supine um, in the face of the, um, you know, 
arms lobby. I don't know why we call them defense lobby. Let's call them what they are. They're the arms, arms lobby. There is a new uh, article in Foreign Policy by two analysts with uh, the RAND Corporation, a Pentagon-tied think tank. And they point out that, look, even if you forget the um, the moral issue and the questions of international law and the question of should the U.S. be involved in Ukraine the way that it is, they point out that from a strictly military point of view, that tactically this flood of U.S. weapons into Ukraine will make no difference on the actual war in, in the Donbass beyond prolonging it. Because no matter how many weapons the U.S. pours in, Russia has such an overwhelming advantage just strictly because of geography, mm-hmm. where it's located. Uh, Ukraine's on Russia's border. It's not on the U.S. border. So the U.S. cannot alter really the course of a war there with pouring in weapons, but yet they continue anyway. And I I guess the question is, why do they continue to come in? And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and just the, the broader issue of U.S. military expenditures, that even if you put aside the moral dimension you know, whether we should be spending money on weapons of war instead of uh, paying teachers or giving kids food. Um, just the question of uh, how easy it is to spend money on war that even from a military point of view makes no sense, makes no quote unquote strategic sense. Well, that's a fundamental point. I mean, if I first talk about the second point of question you asked, <clears throat> excuse me, is how little of our defense has to do with defense. Um, I mean, I, when I talk to sort of, you know, pro-defense, you know, pro uh, groups or outlets, I say, well, you, you really got to understand that you're being had because, um, you know, the, the objective in all in the whole defense system is not defense. If it was, you know, they'd be actually taking care, for instance, they'd be t- to test weapons adequately. And yet the services are putting up a tremendous fight um, to to gut, there's one of the, it was a, in the reform move, defense reform movement of the 1980s, the great victory was the creation of the, um, an office called the director of the Office of Operational uh, uh, DOT, and uh, Operational Testing, um, which was an independent office, is an independent, supposedly independent office, to test weapons before they're put into production. And the services fight with might and main every year to um, to gut this. I mean, they've this year they've quite succeeded in, uh, <clears throat> in the last last budget last cycle they managed to get a provision through saying they should be able to classify or at least res- it was called classified but sensitive or something anyway to stop us reading <laughs> the results of their reports uh, and so forth every year. So you know that's just one example that you know they will you know useless boondoggles like the f-35 um which everyone everyone knows is useless um i mean even the truncated kind of testing that goes on has shown itself shown it to be useless um you know that the uh the navy version the f-35c i think uh certainly last at one point last year had a seven percent readiness rate i.e only seven out of every hundred planes could actually fly and properly perform their missions. So the fact that the services work so hard, but, you know, so oriented to keeping the money flow, but not to sort of maintain themselves in a, put themselves in a state of operational efficiency shows where their priorities lie. So uh, that is really the point. That's the fundamental point, that it's really, you know, it's all about the money. Um, And, you know, at various times, in the days when we had a draft and a huge number of 
people, uh, at least men, had passed through the military, passed through the army. Everyone kind of knew that. You know, everyone knew what a sort of mostly useless, greed-driven bureaucracy it was. Um, now, unfortunately, um, because you know, we have this very sort of isolated, in terms of you know, society at large, military uh, sector, <clears throat> you know, you don't, I keep I always say, you know, if you walk around Washington, you almost never see anyone in uniform. Um, uh, you know, the closest, the closest you get to realizing what a sort of military city it is uh, re in reality is, I know, around the Pentagon, you see all these people with sort of very trim young people with, you know, short haircuts jogging. I mean, otherwise, uh, inside the Pentagon, of course, they all wear combat suits, which is kind of ludicrous. I mean, they don't wear sort of proper full dress uniforms. They wear, you know, like they're you know, camouflage, like they just come in from the field and are heading for the front, which is kind of a I always sound quite amusing sort of fantasy world they live in. But, um, uh, you know, so we, you know, people at large, you know, we've been, there's been such a sustained propaganda effort uh, over recent decades to sort of present this sort of fantasy view of the military, um, and where, of which very few people have direct experience, um, that, you know, people don't realize to what degree as I say, it's a giant confidence trick, uh, pretending to be a sort of, you know, a sensible, I mean, a sorely needed effort to defend us, defend us against um, our enemies, when in fact it's nothing of the kind. Speaking of tricks, I want to ask you about uh, Joe Biden's policy on Yemen, because he campaigned on ending support for the Saudi war in Yemen. He came into office and he announced that he will no longer be providing support for offensive operations to Saudi Arabia, but yeah. he will be providing some support to defensive operations. And what that's meant on the ground practically is more of the same. Uh, just recently, as we're speaking, there was a new massacre by Saudi Arabia in a bombing of something like 70 civilians in Hodeida. Saudi Arabia also knocked out the internet for the bulk of the country. I wonder if you talk about you know, how the weapons industry has profited from the Yemen war and Biden's trick in basically promising to end it, but coming into office and continuing it. Yeah, I mean, if we needed reminding of you know Biden's role in in the ongoing um, disaster, it's about that recent atrocity when you know eighty people, eighty odd people were killed. I mean, actually, there was a piece of a bomb with you know it was clearly a, a Raytheon bomb, courtesy of the Raytheon Corporation. Um, uh, so, I mean, I I looked at I think in, in the book I well, I know in, in the book I talk about you know how closely, you know, how integral the U.S. is to Saudi, the Saudi Arabian military. Um, there's a small town outside of Riyadh called, uh, called Eskan, Eskan Village, which is, it's a thousand uh, U.S. service people and their families, uh, together with their families, who are there to sell weapons. That's what they do. I mean, there's a sort of training thing somewhere in the job description. But uh, um, and actually, when I was writing about this, I looked up all the recent commanders. It's usually commanded by a two-star, two-star uh, uh, usually army. I think maybe sometimes an air force. I can't remember. But uh, and every single one of them had then, when they left the military, they then set up a consultancy 
devoted to selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, that the Saudi US, you know, the, the, you know, it's clearly established. I was certainly able to discover, I mean, uh, bring this out. Um, the Saudi Air Force could not keep flying for a day, certainly not two days, without the large numbers of US contractors keeping the planes flying. Um, they would be, you know, they would run out of, you know, there has to be a continual supply of munitions of bombs and missiles and, uh, you know, from the US to Saudi Arabia just so they can go on uh, bombing, uh, bombing Yemen. Um, so it's, you know, the Biden, he may, you know, I doubt he cares that much about, you know, extinguishing the Houthis or killing Yemenis, but this is a machine it's impossible to stop and certainly not worth investing any political capital in trying to stop it. Um, so that even when, you know, the Congress actually voted, I think the Senate voted by a majority to, you know, cut off the supply of weapons to Saudi Arabia, you know, this was essentially ignored by the administration who went on doing it. Um, we can assume, you know, that the, uh, <clears throat> the you know, fuck Russia may be an important tradition in U.S. foreign policy, but so is fuck Iran. Um, so all the you know, relevant lobby the Israelis have to do is to say, you know, the Houthis are Iranian agents, which they have to a much greater degree when the war started. They have become or much more closer to Iran. Um, so, you know, that it's again, it's I'm not sure I'm answering your question clearly enough, but it's Biden, the idea of stopping weapon sales just because or weapons deliveries uh, just because they're being used to massacre, you know, large numbers of civilians and to destroy a society. It's just doesn't even come on the on the radar for them in the White House, as far as I can see. Let me ask you about a place where the guiding Washington imperatives of fuck Russia and fuck Iran actually converge. And that's Syria. Um, you've done some reporting on the U.S. dirty war in Syria. When uh, James Jeffrey, the former Trump envoy for Syria, was uh, talking about it once, he said that his job in Syria was to create a quagmire for the Russians. This isn't Afghanistan. This isn't Vietnam. This isn't uh, uh, a quagmire. Uh, my job is to make it a quagmire for the Russians. <laughs> and when I interviewed former Obama officials like Rob Malley and Robert Ford, uh, Robert Ford was the former U.S. ambassador to Syria. Uh, they agreed that a part of the guiding motive was to basically uh, bleed Iran because Iran did put a lot of resources into defending its ally, Bashar al-Assad. And so, by the way, did, another, uh, did a former CIA official I interviewed named David McCloskey recently, um, although they cited also the motives of bringing freedom, democracy and all that stuff. But um, the uh, the budget on the CIA dirty war and how much the U.S. spent is still a mystery. The New York Times called it one of the costliest covert action programs in the history of the CIA. Um, the Washington Post says the budget was appro approached $1 billion per year, or about $1 out of every $15 in the CIA's overall budget. And of course, these were for weapons that went to uh, basically sectarian death squads in Syria and weren't directly given to al-Qaeda, but a lot of them did end up in the hands of al-Qaeda, known as al-Nusra, and that's what helped al-Nusra capture the province of Idlib, which it still occupies, creating what a current Biden official, Brett McGurk, calls al-Qaeda's largest safe haven since 9-11. Look, Idlib province is the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11. 
tied directly to Ayman al-Zawahiri. This is a huge problem. I obviously will not talk about anything the U.S. government has done in certain parts of Syria on this problem. But the approach by some of our partners to send in tens of thousands of, uh, tens of, thousands of tons of, of weapons and looking the other way as these foreign fighters come into Syria may not have been the best approach. And uh, al-Qaeda has taken full advantage of it. I'm just wondering, you know, in your in your years of reporting on the Syria, Syria dirty war, what you've what what strikes you about just how much money has been spent on it and what's not what's still not known about this program? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I, don't, I certainly don't know how much I believe all those you know figures. I mean, there was the vast at one point, you know, there was a huge um, early on for a Saudi backed, oh, you know, allegedly Saudi backed jihadi group. Um, the CIA mounted this massive airlift from Croatia um, of weapons. I mean, it's, you know, the scale, they have these command centers in southern Turkey. Um, I think it's not so much the CIA, you know, also in Jordan, maybe that's more the US military, um, a massive effort. And, you know, the only thing it's, it's, you know, it's the same notion they, you know, the Again, it's a replay in a way of what went on in Afghanistan in the 1980s when, um, when the, the CIA was, um, was not only backing, you know, was successfully engage, engaged the Russians in a quagmire, but a point that they continually deny, but it's certainly the case, that they concentrated their aid on the most ex- extreme in Islamic terms, the most extreme jihadi groups in the Syrian, uh, in Syrian insurgency against the uh, against the uh, communist government there, um, and I remember years ago, people who you know Mujahideen commanders who were, you know, could be called moderate, um, complaining bitterly how, you know, the CIA deliberately gave it, you know, directed the bulk of the aid to the. Um, you know, to people like Gilbertine Hekmatyar and to the most extreme things. So, and that we see that pattern exactly repeated in Syria, where they've gone out insofar as there was, uh, you know, a mod, you know, the thing that was always being sort of reverently quoted in the New York Times, the democratic, moderate Syrian resistance or whatever the name they gave it, um, you know, were, were sidelined, but they were sidelined, they were used. Sometimes they were used, uh, the, you know, al-Nusra, as I'm sure you know, would use them as a sort of front people through which the arms could be laundered so that they could, uh, the Americans supplied arms. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it, 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 the, the fact, that, you know, that, that, the, that the CIA and the military and, you know, the whole U.S. government was engaged in, Really, this monstrous war crime of you know not even expecting to win, but to keep you know to have a, a quagmire, uh, as you say, is so you know just disgusting. It's just plain disgusting. And the you know the fact that they've been able to enlist so much of the sort of so many so much of the culture here and in Britain particularly um, in supporting this and cheering it on and you know fermenting lies about. Um, chemical attacks and all the rest. I know you've documented that a lot. Um, it's, you know, I really hope at least there'll come a time when people look back on and say, you know, that was that was a crime. Uh, not that I have much hope for any kind of Nuremberg type trial, I must say. Yeah. 
I think John Kerry put it best when he admitted in a, in a leaked recording, he was speaking to some Syrian opposition activists, that the U.S. was so determined to have regime change in Syria that they were even using ISIS as a tool for that, that not that they were directly supporting ISIS, but that they sat back and watched and basically let ISIS grow in Syria. And we're hoping that the growth of ISIS, including ISIS possibly taking Damascus, would induce Assad to negotiate his way out of power and be replaced by a leader favorable to U.S. interests. And Kerry said that that's why Russia came into the conflict in Syria is because in Kerry's words, Russia, quote, didn't want a Daesh government, did not want an ISIS government. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what gave them that idea? I wonder if they, you know, they probably told each other, yes, you know, we're going to apply pressure and that will let, you know, lead to Assad negotiating a democratic hand. I wonder if they even... And they may sort of may have said that to each other. You know, the whole point I think was, you know, for the CIA to have a major war. Um, you know, but then and the big selling point was, you know, a, a quagmire for the Iranians, and they they'd cobble together come some kind of you know threadbare rationale like the one you you know Kerry quoted. I think they they wanted you know the you know, like the old World War One song, they were there because they were there because they were there. You know, they wanted a war. The, you know, CIA, that's what it does. They, um, this was an opportunity they could, you know, sell to the politicians. Uh, bar, great for the budget. I mean, there's something I, you know, I talk about in the book. There's a little instance, a little insight, which is in 2018, when Trump was sort of talked into mounting a brief sort of little surge, mini surge in Afghanistan. And a source of mine was present at a meeting of senior um, four stars um, in, in, in the Pentagon. And they were discussing this, the, you know, word had just come down. And they said, well, you know, they were agreed. He said they were in full agreement that this would be, you know, it was complete in terms of making a difference in the war. This was completely pointless. But that it would do, quote, do us good at budget time. Um, and that was it. You know, fine. Um, you know, so we had the mini surge. A lot, of, lot more people got killed. And then they went home again. And that was that. But that's, you know, that, that is, you know, it sounds sort of crude to almost to keep mentioning this. But it, that is the point. I mean, that's why they do these things. I think that's in the end why we had this uh you have this slaughter in Syria, slaughter in Yemen, uh maybe soon to come, slaughter in Ukraine. Um, you know, for that reason, then they sort of slap on some sort of gym crack strategic rationale, you know, bleed Iran, um, you know, force Assad to moderate his policies or something. But that's, you know, almost, you know, after the fact excuse. Maybe this is a stretch, but is there a tie between the expansion of NATO for the benefit of the arms industry and the dirty war in Syria in the sense that did expanding NATO make it easier for the CIA to uh, use the former Soviet states to ship their weapons to, to Syria? Well, yeah, I mean, they were getting a lot of weapons from uh, Bulgaria. Um, uh, I don't know if you include Croatia, as I mentioned. Um, yes, I think, you know, and as we know, the you know, former Soviet states have been useful in other ways. You know, they've been useful for places to go and torture people. Um, you know, 
pretty that's pretty well documented. One so, of the CIA yeah. torture sites is for sale right now, actually. Say it again, sorry. One of the former CIA torture sites has just been up for put up has been put up for sale. Private oh, really? buyers can can buy the, a former CIA torture site. Yeah. So you can have a torture theme park or something. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, with probably with CIA veterans sort of you know reenacting their proudest moments. Um, yeah. Yeah, anything's possible in today's world. But yeah, I mean to um, you know to to have in your camp in in NATO a group of regimes, uh, countries where, you know, there's been sort of a acquaintanceship with democracy and all the rest, uh, rule of law has been a bit fractured in recent, you know, recent half century um, with a regime leaders that are desperate to be in the good, good graces of the Americans. Um, of course, you know, that's uh, entirely happy to ship weapons or to enable the, um, you know, cooperation with ISIS or whatever, whatever particular outrage is being contemplated. Well, from the CIA dirty war in Syria, I want to go back to a CIA operation that you covered in the late 1980s. And I recently went back and revisited a documentary that you made with your wife, Leslie Coburn, for PBS. It's called Guns, Drugs, and the CIA. And it's an investigation going around the world from Vietnam, Cambodia to Central America on the CIA's role in the international drug trade. This is Frontline with Judy Woodruff. Tonight's Frontline investigation traces the CIA's involvement with drug lords back to the agency's birth following World War II. It is a long history that asks this question. In the war on drugs, which side is the CIA on? Our program was produced by Leslie and Andrew Coburn. It is called Guns, Drugs, and the CIA, and is reported by Leslie Coburn. And first of all, it's just a shocking documentary. And it's shocking now to look back and watch it and see PBS talk openly about the CIA's role in the international drug trade and my impression in watching it on top of just being stunned by the reporting you did and all the all the people you got on record to admit to their role in it and high level officials speaking about you know overseeing or tacitly approving of drug operations the fact that this was aired on PBS i just i was watching and i was like there's no way that this could be put on the air in a major us media outlet now i'm wondering uh -huh. I'm wondering just to talk about how you made that documentary, what it was like to get it on air and, and any reflections you have on it, you know, more than 30 years later. Uh, well, yeah, it was um, <clears throat> it really PBS. It was PBS Frontline, which in those days was under very different control. I mean, they were up for much more um, independent uh, journalism than they seem to be today, uh, independent of whatever the official ideology is. Um, it grew out of really um, work that Leslie, my wife, had done actually for CBS, uh, yeah, for CBS, um, on the dirty war in Nicaragua, um, where she'd come across evidence that the, you know, clear evidence that the Contras were engaged in um, in, in, in narcotics trafficking. Um, so we were able to build on that, but, but then... <clears throat> Going back, you know, we realized that, you know, to tell the story properly, we had to go back to the to the Vietnam War and to the particular 
events that had happened in Laos, whereas people may or may not remember, there was a dirty war, a secret war fought by the CIA against the uh, against the communists, against the North Vietnamese and the uh, and the Laotian communists in northern Laos, enlisting this uh, group of indigenous group called the Hmong, the Hmong people, and the Hmong had previously been used by the French in their war in Vietnam to um, the French French intelligence had been engaged in the uh, <clears throat> in shipment of in, in the opium trade. Um, basically to help finance what they were doing. And the CIA really took that over. Um, and our great success, I remember we went to uh, we went to Northern Laos, or went to Thailand. You couldn't go to Northern Laos at that time. We went to Thailand just over the border from Laos and found the guy who'd run, who'd been the sort of military, the CIA's military commander with the Hmong. Um, and it was a guy called Tony Poe, who was really as someone, uh, remember when I was looking for him and I was asking all his former colleagues in the CIA that I could talk to, I was saying, what was Tony Poe like? And to a man, they'd also say, oh, he was the guy Marlon Brando was trying to play in Apocalypse Now. Um, and he was, he actually looked like him even. And he was a sort of, as someone else described him as an amiable psychopath, which is also a correct <laughs> description. But he admitted it's the only time, that's why I'm so proud of this film, it's the only time that anyone, any for actual former CIA official, has admitted on camera, which he did to Leslie, that the CIA had been flying their local warlords, in this case their local warlords, heroin. Oh, he's making millions. Because he had his own source of uh, avenue for his own uh, heroin. What did he do with the money? What do you mean? U.S. bank accounts, Switzerland, wherever. Didn't they know when Bang Pao said, I want some aircraft? Didn't they know what he wanted that for? I'm sure we all knew what was going to But we were trying to monitor it because we control most of the pilots, you see. We're giving him a freedom of uh, navigation in the Thailand, in the bases. And we don't want him to get involved in uh, in moving, you know, this illicit traffic. Okay, silver bars and gold, okay, but not heroin. Uh, what they would do is they weren't going into Thailand, they were flying it in a big wet wing airplane that could fly for 13 hours, a DC-3, and all the wings were filled with gas. They fly down to Paxe, then they fly over to Da Nang, and then the number two guy, the President Two, would receive it. Um, they provided the airplane and they were, you know, so he could fly his heroin to market at a time when, you know, several GIs a day were dying of overdoses in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, there were other people uh, who'd been associated, you know, I remember talking to um, former Air America, which was the CIA's private airline pilots, in, um, and one of whom I put on, we put on camera. Uh, Neil Hansen, who for reasons I never discovered was known as Weird Neil. Um, and he was in jail because he'd gone in, you know, he'd become a drug pilot for the cartels. But uh, he said, yeah, he said, I remember his great line. He said, I flew the sticky bricks. Um, so they were all in on it. And this, you know, this was not a new revelation. Um, there was Alfred McCoy's great book, um, Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, 
But no one before, until we came along, and I say this in all, you know, lack of humility, had um, had actually gotten these people to talk. Uh, there was the pilot. There was a USAID guy, um, Ron Rickenback, uh, who described he'd been sort of, he said, yes, I remember seeing all the opium lined up in the crates on the side of the runway being loaded onto the Air America planes. And I was on the airstrip. Um, that was my job to move in and about and to go from place to place. And my people were in charge of dispatching aircraft. I was in the areas where opium was transshipped. I personally was a witness to opium being placed on aircraft, American aircraft. I witnessed it being taken off smaller aircraft that were coming in from outlying sites. Yes, I've seen the sticky bricks come on board and no one was uh, challenging their right to carry it. It was their own property. Neil Hansen is a former senior Air America pilot now serving a sentence for smuggling cocaine. We were uh, some sort of a, a freebie airline in some respects uh, there. Uh, whoever the customer or uh, the local representative put on the airplane, we flew. Primarily, it was transported on our smaller aircraft, the Helios, the Porters, and the things like that that would visit the little outlying villages. They would send their opium to market. I mean, it was like, a, it was well known to hundreds, if not thousands of people who'd mentioned, you know, who'd all, you know, but nevertheless, the official truth had been denied for decade after decade. And anyone who said, oh, the CIA was, you know, involved in the drug trade in Southeast Asia got dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. And then we find the same thing going on in Central America during the Contra War. Are you aware of whether or not narcotics proceeds at some time may or may not have supported Contra efforts. Yes, sir. Narcotics proceeds were used to shore up the uh, Contra effort. Did you personally play a role in some of the transfer of that money? Yes, I did. In 1984, when Congress cut off Contra funding, the White House turned to other sources for support. According to documents, Ramon Millan Rodriguez had been laundering foreign payments for the CIA up through 1982, at the same time as he was laundering cash for the cocaine cartel. He says the CIA turned to him again. To have people like me in place that can be used is marvelous for them. The agency, and quite rightly so, has things that they have to do which they can't never admit to an oversight committee. Right? And the only way they can fund these things is through drug money or through illicit money that they can get their hands on in some way. Um, you know, it's, um, you know it's, so we have a pattern, going back to what we've been talking about earlier, with the, the agency and the you know, U.S. covert op state, I mean, the covert operations side of the U.S. government continually engages in, in an ongoing alliance with the most extreme you know, terrorist-inclined jihadis. That seems to be a very, you know, recurring feature. And is also engaged in the drug trade. Um, I don't know if there's much aspect of the drug trade in Ukraine, but if, it, if there was, I'm sure we'd be involved in it. Well, Andrew Coburn, I really appreciate your time. Andrew Coburn is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. His most recent book is The Spoils of War. 
Andrew, thanks a lot. Hey, a pleasure. Thank you.